So small signals about our demography uh, can play into unconscious biases and stereotypes that we hold about other people unknowingly, uh, and that that is predictive of whether someone's considered to be worthy of being hired, even though it has usually next to nothing to do with their capability to do the job. That's Kate Blaisbrook, one of the co-founders of Applied, and this is Wild Hearts. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Wild Hearts, a podcast dedicated to sharing the real stories of founders, the passionate few taking giant leaps forward. We're here to uncover the lessons from the founders looking to change the world and the investors who back them. This podcast is brought to you by the team of Blackbird, and I'm your host, Mason Yates. Blackbird is based across Australia and New Zealand, and we were founded in 2012 with a single mission, to supercharge the most ambitious founders. We all like to think we're stellar decision makers, but the truth is we're all inherently biased. And while these biases are helpful to processing information and making decisions, if we fail to interpret information in an unbiased way, it can lead to serious misjudgments. Hiring is one of the most important decisions a company makes. Any company is only as great as the people building it. But bias in hiring decisions can often mean the best candidate doesn't land the job. Applied solves these problems. So in this episode, we'll hear from the co-founder of Applied and Harvard Kennedy School graduate, Kate Glazebrook. She'll talk us through how these systematic biases drove her to create Applied. Kiati Sundaram, Applied CEO, stepped into the role during one of the worst economic environments we've seen. We'll listen to how her 100-day CEO plan went out the window. And finally, Nick Crocker, Blackbird partner and board member of Applied. He'll talk us through why he's so obsessed with Applied's mission and what he's leaned on during the CEO transition. Let's jump into the episode with Kate, the co-founder of Applied. Why did you believe Applied should exist? Recent studies, and by, by recent I mean in the last sort of 80 years, have changed our assumptions about why people do what they do, uh, what motivates us, um, and what explains behaviours which we might assume to be irrational. Uh, and a lot of that work uh, centres around how context shapes the decisions that we take and how context can change our decisions even where we have great intentions to make different ones. So an example of that could be how you make a different decision about what financial product you're going to buy based on which of them is listed first on a page. So even crazy decisions that have huge implications for our financial well-being or, or other forms of well-being can be influenced by even small design factors in how those decisions are presented to us. Um, and I'd previously spent a lot of my career working in and around government on things to do broadly with social mobility. Um, so I used to work in the Australian government on sort of tax and welfare and then education policy. And then I went to work in the UN and then did some further study and, and concentrated a lot on inequality. Uh, and that's when I sort of uncovered this sort of wealth of research around how the way we evaluate other people uh, means that we often inadvertently systematically bias against people who are different from ourselves. One particularly strong area of research was how the decisions that we take in a hiring context can be very strongly influenced by small differences in how different people are presented to us. Uh, and in particular, there's now about 40 years worth of research looking at uh, how even changes in the name at the top of a CV can influence the likelihood that somebody is deemed worthy of being hired. Even other small details like whether or not you were the president of the LGBTQ plus society at university or some other kind of innocuous student society. So small signals about our demography uh, can play into unconscious biases and stereotypes that we hold about other people unknowingly uh, and that that is predictive of whether someone's considered to be worthy of being hired even though it has usually next to nothing to do with their capability to do the job. So why did we create Applied? Well, mostly out of frustration at reading study after study after study that showed these biases are not only systematic, so we found evidence of them uh, not only in equivalent studies across Australia, US, UK, Canada, but also in other countries around the world uh, across multiple types of demography. So whether it was women being overlooked in tech jobs or men being overlooked in traditional caring jobs or ethnic minorities, frankly, sadly, all over the world being overlooked no matter what the job, but also that the rate of discrimination sadly hasn't changed. Uh, so they've done studies over the last 50 years and have shown that the rate of unconscious bias discrimination against people 
from minority backgrounds has essentially not changed uh, since the 1970s, despite wow. sort of huge shifts, as I'm sure we all feel, in the way that we talk about um, race, in the way that we talk about sex discrimination, in social attitudes, and also to sort of legislative changes. All of those things are real. But sadly, they've yet to penetrate um, the kind of unconscious mind when it's making quick decisions and quick evaluations about other people. Government had thrown basically everything it could at the problem, right? Uh. So we all know that there's discrimination legislation, there's equality legislation, there's a whole bunch of stuff that government says is illegal or legal to do in this space. But government isn't there when somebody's 6pm on a Thursday afternoon sifting through CVs and deciding whether to bring someone into interview. Government's not present for that. Those candidates are not present for that. In fact, all that we know is that we have a small moment when we can think about how those decisions get taken and how we design what is salient and what is not. Um, so it felt to us like it was a behavioural problem um, with some perhaps behavioural solutions, but those solutions needed to look like something that real people would use in their everyday lives, not government policy, not strategic intent, not diversity statements, and certainly not diversity training, which has no impact. Uh. We needed to have something that was the very tool that you use in your everyday life, um, but just designed to remove bias. The problem is so deeply ingrained in the way humans have always operated. How did you even begin thinking about building a product that can challenge some of those deeply nuanced parts of how we operate? Well, you, you make a good point. I think sometimes uh, naivety can be to your advantage when you're in the early stages <laughs> of a startup, right? Like uh, ignorance can sometimes be bliss because it gives you it gives you a degree of audaciousness, I guess, um, yeah. which is what you look for, I think, a lot in your Blackbird companies who's willing to, to challenge the mould. Um, so I guess the first way we started thinking about it is while we're at the Behavioural Insights team, naturally what we wanted to do was experiment with different ways of removing bias. Uh, so there'd been this wealth of research that suggested things like me knowing that your name is Mason might inadvertently bias me either in favour or against you. But either way, your name being Mason tells me nothing about how incredible you'll be as a partner in Blackbird, right? Uh, and so one of the obvious areas was, well, let's take off things from hiring processes that we think might become distractions. Uh, so let's start anonymizing. And we were the first technology tool about six years ago to do anonymized sort of wholesale anonymized recruitment. And that was kind of an easy design solution to begin with. But actually, we didn't really want to stop there because we also knew from a lot of other social psychology research that a whole host of other contextual factors influence the decisions that you take, uh, even beyond the kind of headline grabbing bias that we hear about, right? So some of the other things we were interested in is there'd been an area of research in um, social psychology around and cognitive psychology called sort of ordering effects. So to what extent does the decision you take about something or your evaluation of it depend on when you come across that decision? So do you make a different decision in the morning than you would make about exactly the same thing in the afternoon? <laughs> does your decision hinge on whether you've been caffeinated? <laughs> yeah, well, indeed. Um, you know, have you had your coffee? Did you just come out of a good meeting or a poor meeting? Are you in a good mood? Are you not in a good mood? A whole host of these sort of contextual factors and also the order in which they're presented to you can can have big impacts. So one of the things we wanted to do is sort of disentangle that. So we ran experiments um, with real people online, testing how they evaluated candidates depending on when that candidate um, came to them. So did they evaluate them differently if they were first, if the, it was the first candidate they evaluated or the 72nd candidate that they evaluated. Um, and out of that, just one piece of research, we found three really fascinating things. One was almost all of us are more generous to begin with and we become harsher with our evaluations really? of people over time. And some of that is sort of cognitive load. You know, you get, um, you get overloaded with making decisions and we, we do know from other parts of neuroscience research that uh, even blood sugar levels can have an influence on the sorts of decisions you take. If you've taken many decisions in a day, it can um, deplete part of your brain that's capable of taking those decisions and you make poorer decisions, which is one of the reasons why Obama sort of famously said, he only has 
um, one style of suit in two colours, black and navy, I think it was, from Brooks Brothers. And the reason he said he had that was just because he's got enough important decisions to take every day. Why would he bother expending energy on his suit, right? So yeah, one of the things we found was most people start off more generously, become harsher over time. Uh, Why is that relevant? Actually, Mason, you're a classic example of this. Your surname is Yates. Um, That means it's Y, means it's toward the end of the... Of the alphabet, meaning in most hiring processes that automatically, you know, reorder candidate applications by alphabet, because that sounds like a fair thing to do, right? It's not Mm. taking a stand on these candidates. It does mean people with surnames that are toward the end of the alphabet will be reviewed systematically toward the end of most processes, which means we know systematically you're more harshly evaluated than most people would be. So every job you've ever gotten, Mason, you can be incredibly, you can be certain you would definitely I was going to say it. that explains so much why, why it took applied for me to get a job. No. Well, I mean, I guess it is worth saying, though, that we started compiling. So that was one of the factors. The other factor was we all are a bit all over the place when we first start evaluating things. That's not surprising, right? It takes a little bit of a while to calibrate. So there's a lot of variance in what happens at the beginning, though generally that variance is on the more positive end. But the third thing we found was um, an area where we discovered that how I evaluate you, Mason, um, depends also on who I've just evaluated. So let's say I've evaluated someone who was not a very likely candidate, so not, you know, not well suited to the job, didn't make an effort in their application. I rated them very poorly you come along and no matter how good you are, I'm going to give you a slight upwards bump just because you're comparing to someone who was really poor. Mm. And so you actually get more generously evaluated um, by me unconsciously than would otherwise be the case. We also found systematically the reverse is the case. So if I evaluate someone who is smashed it out of the park, just like clearly phenomenal, if you're immediately after them and you're not exactly as good as they are, I will be more harsh in my evaluation of you than I otherwise would have been. Because again, I have a new sort of reference point, very high watermark in my mind, and you suffer the consequences of that. Put all of those factors together and being seen first in a hiring process is as good as the difference between not getting the job and getting the job. So that was just one other area where we thought, well, these, you know, most hiring processes involve evaluating 50 plus candidates um, for a job. Many people do it off the side of their day jobs when they're tired, they're bored, they don't enjoy it. Uh, They might be cognitively loaded from other parts of their their role. And so these contextual factors can end up being really meaningful. It can be the difference between a candidate getting a a shot at the job and being immediately discarded. So you can see that these aren't even the kind of more more obvious areas of bias, but they do end up becoming very important factors, particularly if what organisations are trying to do is more objectively evaluate who's likely to be the best fit for this role. And if at the end of the day, a lot of that comes down to the sort of idiosyncrasies of the person and how they were feeling on that particular day, we know that there's a risk that there's great people being missed in those processes. So the original question was, what did we do? The first thing we did was we ran a year's worth of randomised control trial experiments on everything from ordering effects like I just talked about to how many people do you need involved in a decision to be confident that you've gotten the decision right. So like where do you get the wisdom of the crowd in a hiring process? Um, We've written all of these up, by the way, for anyone who's interested, just head to our blog. Uh, And the answer to that, by the way, is you want three people involved so long as they don't speak to one another about their scores. And ideally, you want a diversity of opinions. Um, And you want to be conscious to involve both junior and senior and senior people in decisions, but importantly, don't let people talk about it before they submit their scores because a whole host of other biases like, oh, shit, my boss just said they thought that candidate was terrible, but I actually thought they were great. I'm now going to like quietly scrub that one out and change my score. And what you don't want is that to happen because actually people's individual perspectives and, and keeping those independent is really, really important to getting that wisdom of the crowd and avoiding the groupthink um, mm. of everybody falls into line after that sort of powerful boss's voice. You've touched on a few areas that people should be aware of uh, when hiring. What do you think a world-class hiring process looks like? Well, at Applied, where our sort of mission statement is like deadly simple, like sort of surprisingly and embarrassingly simple, which is that we want to help you to hire the best person for the job, regardless of their background. And the reason why that's sort of embarrassingly simple is I think everybody who works in people and, and HR believes that that's what they're doing. 
right? They're, they don't set out to be biased against particular groups. They don't set out to find just the person who looked a lot like the person they just hired. In fact, many people in this field have very strong, you know, personal motivations to do better. They're not tooled up to do that because actually inadvertently a lot of the tools that they're using to make those decisions make salient all of the things we don't want to be salient. So they often end up having like LinkedIn integrations where you know, we're actually regressing, right? So I'm seeing your picture, your name, and a whole host of other details about you before I've even gotten to anything vaguely relevant to whether you're going to be the right person for the job. We think a world-class process is one that focuses on testing candidates for the things that they're actually going to do in the day job, getting rid of CVs, cover letters, references, oh, this person's amazing, all of the things that are the easy go-to things we've done for, frankly, decades in hiring because they're not predictive of the the best candidate for the role. They will tend to result in us hiring the same type of person over and over again. And often that person will look and feel a lot like us because we tend to get along with those people better. So instead of doing that, testing candidates on real things they're going to do in the job, so sort of small job scenarios, what would you do in this particular situation? And giving people creative space to say how I would approach it is this, 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 and and doing that throughout the process. Then collecting all of those data points, as I said earlier, which reflect what the job's really about and what you're expecting of them. You obviously have a lot of data on applicants going through applied. Have you noticed anything about what a world-class employee might look like? Uh, What have their responses been like? Yeah. So actually we did a piece of analysis at the end of last year. So we've now had over 200,000 candidates apply to jobs all over the world through the platform. And those jobs range from people like yourself, Mason. So, um, you know, into VCs and startups all the way through to people working for Penguin Random House and HarperCollins in the publishing industry to large government departments here in the UK and abroad uh, and everything in between. So we've got quite an interesting and diverse set of customers Uh, and a diverse set of kind of um, experiences of people coming through the platform. So we did a piece of analysis looking at one of the metrics that, you know, HR folk use a lot is what is my retention rate? So a way of measuring how successful a hiring process is, is just looking at did this person stick around, you know, three months later, six months later? Did we feel that they were a good fit? Are they staying and are they thriving within the organisation? And what our analysis showed at the end of last year was we had about a, 96% 96% first year retention rate. Wow. Um, so that's to say virtually everyone hired through the platform was still there a year later. Um, Do you have any idea what the compared, are? Yeah, that compares okay. to about an 80% um, retention rate. Wow. There's a couple of features that lie behind that. One of them is sort of um, what we talked about earlier, which is that the way that people get hired through our platform is by breaking down what a day or a week in the life of that job is and testing candidates on their sort of skills and aptitudes and attitudes to meet those expectations. So also for the candidate, and this is one of the things that we we feel quite passionately about, is that there's been this long-standing sort of power asymmetry in hiring processes where, you know, candidates are asked everything about themselves, including the name of their first cat in most hiring processes. <laughs> And yet the decision-making process and exactly what's important is totally opaque to most candidates. It's not clear why they're being asked the things that they're being asked. They have no idea they're waiting over those things or why it is that they're being asked them. And they certainly usually feel like it takes them a long time for them to yield as much interesting information for themselves to decide whether it's the right role for them as the employer is able to do in the extraction process from the candidate. So we feel like that kind of that lowering of the bar and actually opening up of the transparency of the process, being really clear these are the sorts of, you know, aptitudes and attitudes we're expecting you to have in this role, Um, just make it so much more likely that everybody in that process knows what they're on about and is able to sort of make the right decision for them and for the organisation. So I think there's both the science behind why it's more predictive and why we managed to get this huge uplift. But there's also the sort of qualitative, the feel um, of both people on, that, on on each side of that. I so resonate with that last point. I remember leaving university and just sort of flashing the resume around, not really understanding deeply why Deloitte was different to another B4. That is just so true. And you really have no idea what you're getting yourself into. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't know what the rates are or, or what their retention is like. And you know, what's interesting you say that Mason, but you know, when we speak to people like those in the big four and equivalent industries where they have like, you know, direct competitors, 
they believe themselves to be totally different, you know, <laughs> to take Deloitte. They're like, well, Deloitte's totally different than PwC in all of these important ways. And you're like, that might be true, but that's not at all clear to somebody who's not like steeped in being in one of your organizations. To you, you all look like large multinational successful accounting firms with a slightly different client base, you know. Um, so I think that's absolutely right is, you know, organizations also we, you know, we live and breathe the organization we work in. We sort of tend to forget what it feels like to be a novice to that organization, what it feels like to be someone who's only interacting with that organization through the candidate lens. So over the last year, we've seen this huge uplift in employers um, assessing candidates for what they sort of loosely refer to as mission fit. So, you know, why is it that this organization with this particular mission is the thing you care most about? Why would you get up every day, uh, including on the hard days, um, to do this job over another equivalent one. Um, and, and that we think is really important because, of course, a whole bunch of aspects of what jobs are about is staying motivated, having tenacity and the resilience to sort of push through when things get tough. And if you don't ultimately really care about what that organisation is trying to achieve, it'll be harder for you on those particular days. So we often work with organisations to sort of measure um, mission fit um, which is important and distinct, different concept from what most people go to, which is like culture fit. And that phrase usually makes us makes us wince because culture fit for many people, particularly for minority candidates or candidates from minority backgrounds, they understand that culture fit is often a way of white people referring to wanting to work with people who look like them. You know, like, could I imagine doing the same sorts of things as you on a weekend? Mm. You know, that kind of age old, like, how would you feel if you were sitting next to them on a plane, which, you know, organizations up until quite recently was still using as a tool for deciding whether someone was right for the job. And it's like, well, of course that's going to result in finding the same person over and over again, because you'll be more comfortable, comfortable sitting on a plane next to someone who's like you. Mm. Um, and so there is this huge jump between saying we're not looking for somebody who fits the culture. In fact, ideally we want someone who adds to that culture and brings something that we don't currently have. Otherwise, what's the point? We don't need mini me's. We need people who are going to contribute new ideas and new perspectives. Um, but what we do really want is someone who's really passionate about the mission of our organization. Um, and so, yeah, we've seen that over the last year, huge rise in sort of people testing for more like mission fit and a, and a drop off in people testing just for have you ever worked in a VC before? Have you ever worked in XYZ before? Because we increasingly recognize that people with unusual work histories can often bring the most to our organizations because they are most unlike us. I guess that's definitely also a, I guess a stigma around startups. And I don't know if you've seen it in Australia, but there's always this imbalance between having the best culture and, and Friday drinks and then um, also being just making sure that they're the right person for the mission that everyone's trying to create. And how should founders think about that? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think, you know, employer, you know, careers pages for, for startups went through this phase over the last 10 years where all of a sudden you were seeing like, you know, all of the perks of working in those, in those startups were like, you can bring your dog to work. And, you know, we, here's, here's the free beer that we start pouring at 4 PM on a Friday and, um, and a whole host of things, which looked like giving people a sense of community at work. And of course, there's a lot of, a lot of that that's really positive. You know, I think it's great that startups are sort of challenging traditional notions of what employment should look like and, and recognizing that work, um, a lot of, you know, getting work done is about also having strong relationships and, and making sure you enjoy yourself at work as to the best extent possible. So I think the, the tension you describe is real. And, and often when we talk to startups, we'll sort of say like, to the best extent possible, feel free to have a lot of that social stuff. That's great. Thinking about um, how you in sort of design those sorts of social activities in a way that's most likely to pick up most people and also give people the choice to opt in or not, depending on what they feel comfortable with. Um, so one of the things we do um, at Applied is I designed the How I Like to Work survey, um, which we include as part of our onboarding, uh, which includes a couple of questions just about yourself that might be relevant for people to know. So one of them is even just about dietary preferences. Um, we know it's kind of awkward to say, well, actually I'm allergic to blah or I'm a vegetarian or whatever the case may be, but it can be really useful for somebody who's um, 
you know, getting food in for the office to know all of that stuff ahead of time without making somebody who's new feel really uncomfortable about saying, actually, I can't eat anything here because I can only eat halal or whatever the case may be. Mm. So we include like questions that are super basic, um, but end up yielding some useful information all the way through to, you know, if I have to work long hours, um, I'd prefer to do a slightly longer work day during the week or actually... I need to be able to leave at 4.30 to pick up my kids, but I'm happy to log on for an hour or two on the weekend if needed. Or here are my non-negotiables of things where if I can, if there's any anything that goes wrong on a Wednesday night, can I please not be the first person that gets called because that's when I'm engaged in whatever activity that I do. So we kind of collect a lot of that information as standard at the beginning of an onboarding process it's something that then goes on the drive so everyone in the team can read that as that person comes in and get to know a bit about them but also it sort of makes it easier to have some of those initial conversations which can feel really uncomfortable as a new person in an organization to speak up about it just sort of becomes the default of a thing that you do. And then that becomes a useful tool for saying, okay, well, if we were to design a social activity, are there any things that I should keep in mind? And you can immediately refer to that without having to survey the organisation every time, every time you want to do it. So it ends up serving a bunch of different purposes and it's nothing rocket science about it. Um, in fact, you know, if people are keen, happy to share our template um, if you want to have a look at it. Um, but it, it can be it can be hugely important. On the on the point of founders, I, I just wanted to see if you were willing to share part of your experience as, as stepping down as a CEO. And I imagine it, it was a really really hard decision to make. Yeah, sure. Um, it was. Um, I think it's fair to say that on account of the privileged existence I've had in life, it was definitely one of the hardest decisions I've ever taken. A couple of months ago, early in 2020. Uh, I announced that I was stepping back after about five, five and a half years at the helm of Applied. Um, and I wrote a long blog post about it for anyone who's particularly uh, keen to dig into it. The reason why was I felt like we were moving into a different phase as a business. So we had over 100 customers. We were tripling revenues every year. What I felt like and the team very much felt that we were moving into a phase where we wanted to double down on product-led growth. So we wanted to double down on how can we make this product experience Sing because we've got now loads of evidence that suggests that you know over half of the candidates that come through the platform would otherwise not have been hired without the platform. So our kind of impact figures are strong and kind of ever reinforced by the research that we do. But we also know we've got a long journey ahead to making the product experience as wonderful as we want to be able to make it. I mean, you're never done with product, right? Um, and so I felt like the kind of type of leadership and the, and the expertise we needed leading the business through that next phase was different than what I was able to bring. You know, I'm a behavioral scientist or a behavioral econom economist with a sort of research and impact background. And I felt that we needed to be able to bring in somebody um, to take on that next set of challenges. And so Kiati, I'm delighted to say, who had been our head of product has taken over as CEO and she's doing a phenomenal, um, a phenomenal job for anybody who has considered this or, or, or wants to keep it in mind, I guess we at Applied, by virtue of what it is that we do, right, where I said our mission is dead simple, you want to find the best person for the job regardless of their background. Mm. And we used to joke, um, I actually went through Applied to get my own job as CEO because I had to get a, a visa <laughs> renewal. So, um, and it was terrifying actually, right, there was somebody who'd applied a few years ago when, when we put the role up that was really good and um, so people evaluating were like, well, we might end up with a different CEO as a result of this process, which we thought would result oh, in... Wow. Um, an amazing blog post about how effective the tool was at debiasing. In the end, I didn't get the job, but, um, but you know, we'd always kept it top of mind that just because I was one of the founders of the business um, and that I had the incumbency bias of being the CEO um, doesn't mean that I'm always going to be the best person to take this business to this next stage, you know? And we'd always sort of talked about that quite openly within the team that we should avoid falling into the kind of founder dilemma of just assuming that you're the only one who could ever do that job. Um, which unfortunately, you know, speaking plainly, I think sometimes gets reinforced by the kind of investment landscape where there's a real sense of naturally sort of hesitation around changes, um, to teams in their relatively early days. And so um, in my deliberations last year, when I was sort of deciding whether it felt right, um, which I also made the decision for me personally, um, for some of 
the things that I needed to be able to do in, in my own life, which I was mm. struggling to be able to marry with, with what the job needed from me. Um, but I did some analysis actually looking at, you know, CEO transitions. And I was, I was deeply frustrated to find that almost all that's written about this is written about CEOs that are forced out um, wow. either by investors or, or whatever the case may be. Um, because I guess it is more unusual for people to have the self-knowledge sometimes to decide that, it, that they're not the right person to do it. But actually, I still nevertheless found some sort of surprising stats. Um, so the stats in the US show that actually founders staying on as CEO is, is not only not the norm, it's far from the norm. Um, so if you look at um, businesses that go through to IPO, only one in four of those um, businesses are led by the CEO that was the founder CEO. Um, and in fact, over half of the CEOs of, of small businesses leave being CEO within the sort of first four years. You know, our kind of tendency to equate founders with the sort of Mark Zuckerbergs or the, or the Jeff Bezoses of the world, they're actually the anomaly, the ones that really end up being the, the right person to stay at the helm that whole time. It was sort of a further reinforcement that I felt that we'd made the right decision about which investors we brought into the business when they were faced with something sort of big and seemingly scary as that. Well, it's remarkably self-aware and um, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast and, and sharing your thoughts and your experiences um, with everyone for, for the channel. So thank you so much again for your time. Thanks, Mason. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having us on. Thank you so much for your time, Kate. And here's Kiati, the CEO of Applied. Your background to joining Applied was as a product manager Kate was just talking about the transition from her expertise and then leading into a, a really uh, into a, a product-led organization. Um, can you tell me about what it was like at the very beginning when that transition started unfolding? I was hired as the head of product in yeah. Jan 2019 and got appointed as CEO in Jan 2020 in an acting capacity. Yeah. So quite a year, you can say, <laughs> ended up with a massive promotion, not what I was expecting. But initially, I think it's hard to put into words the immediate emotions that overcame us when Kate, Kate said she wanted to take a step back from the operational side. This is the exact thing. We all went through our seven steps of grief or <laughs> however many steps there are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which took a little while to absorb. Kate had been the face and the name behind Applied for many, many, many years, and it was just hard for us to dissociate that. We then did go through a rigorous process of scrutinizing every aspect of the business that would be impacted and that would need to change. What were some of the, the key product skills that you have leaned on, one as a product manager, but now as the CEO? There's several parts to this. One is definitely having the core sense of what you want to build in the product. And I think I use the terminology user science or consumer science, mm. but this is very much trying to go to where the user is and where the user wants to go. So you take them there, you move from what do the users say to Let's test it because a lot of the times the user might not know what they want. I think getting down to the bottom of that user science is one of the main skills that I think I bring or I brought to my uh, product uh, journey in my past company and this company. Second very core part of the process is just having this sense of like a very focused sense of what are we trying to achieve, right? Every product decision goes back to the mission and the vision of the company. Building that from the ground up, again, very much focused towards the product-led journey of the company, building for the end user. I think those are the main things that I would want in uh, a product manager or a product team. Coming from such a deeply intimate product background, coming in as, as CEO, um, of a company really wanting to be built on product-led growth. What have you found yourself focusing on when it comes to product within the first sort of six months that you've, you've been CEO? Well, it's interesting you say that. I haven't had a lot of time spent on product as much as I would have liked. Mm. I mean, I took the role in Jan 2020. So the first 70 odd days were very much spent on fundraising. As you know, we closed around 
uh, Seed Plus round with Blackbird and Skip mm. as of March. Um, so the first 70 odd days, very much a baptism by fire, if you will. There's a certain <laughs> element of risk when you go knocking on doors and saying, hey, you don't know me, but please trust me, I am the right person for the next phase for this incredible business, a different person than you had imagined, but nonetheless the right person. So it took me <laughs> quite a while to do that. Um, and the bulk of the time was spent on that rather than the product. But since the fundraise, yes, it's driving more focus in business so we can get the product out there to anyone and everyone while building a great company, both on an operating and a human level. And I, I wanted to share this with you. I heard this somewhere. Companies with purpose last, but people, people with purpose thrive. And that's the ambition right now. That's the ambition that I have and we all have for applied to build that kind of a company. So you closed the round in March. How do you stay true to that idea when half of the world shuts down within sort of less than three months of your tenure um, with COVID-19 hitting? Yes. So we closed the round on 26th March. I think the UK went into lockdown simultaneously mm. um, I won't lie it's been hard and something none of us something none of us that could have been prepared for first I would like to say I'm really proud of the applied team how we've responded we've gone back to our values of trust resilience and empathy and it's shown through how we've treated customers even the same customers who are under the same sorts of pressures as a business as we are were. Coming back to hiring, it did slow down and the UK has been lagging massively behind other countries such as the US and Australia. You may know this better than I do. You would have seen this through the portfolios. There are still a fair section of companies hiring. Tech per se is very much on the up and up. Mm -hmm. So we're still now trying to identify and navigate these challenging times by being true to our values, but at the same time looking for more focused areas of growth. We are very much now focused on product development. Uh, and as I said, the UK is lagging behind. So we are now looking at internationalization of our product as well. So going towards the US and Australia. How did you think about your expectations coming in as a CEO, what you thought the first 90 days would be like? And then what was it actually like? Well, and I, I know that's like just an absurd question because you <laughs> are in the middle of a pandemic and that's why... Um, I would just, I would love to get your thoughts. Well, to be, to be completely honest, I did have a hundred day plan, right? Like most, <laughs> people, most people in this seat would take, will tell you that that's the first thing they do. They, they diarize in an A4 sheet of paper, what their first hundred days looks like and what they want to achieve. And it was a 10 point plan, very concisely written, shared with the exec team, uh, with deadlines saying, this is what I want to achieve in the first hundred days, 30 days into that or maybe 20 days into that, that plan was just ripped to pieces. <laughs> <laughs> it's just very quickly we realized that we had to become a more focused, more efficient and a more effective leader company. Um, and therefore, since then, our priorities have changed. We, we are very much focused towards employee well-being, making sure our customers uh, see the value in the product, even when hiring is slowed down, because we are essentially a hiring platform. And yes, um, most companies have been impacted, but we have been impacted somewhere along the spectrum uh, as well. And therefore, being very cognizant about what our priorities are and how do we work effectively on a, on a leaner scale. One of the really remarkable things about the platform now is that you switched to a freemium model. As an engineering team, you guys have been able to build that out pretty remarkably. Can you run us through some of the steps that you took to help roll that out? There were two reasons why we decided to do that, I think. The first very much goes back to our vision of building an end-to-end -end hiring platform to remove the biases from each part of the hiring funnel and not just be a point solution or a cog in the bigger hiring machine. So it was clear at this stage that that in particular won't be a solution for large companies. Quite often they need customization and point solutions that are plug and play. And we did not philosophically want to be that. Uh, the second reason that also took us on this self-serve product-led path was this solid reckoning over the last six months about where our product market fit lies. 
we knew we needed a product-led growth to be scalable very quickly. Uh, but we have seen over the last six to eight months that most of the people who buy us and who stick longer with us, for example, and have more lock-in and stickiness are the smaller companies of the spectrum who we can help in the initial periods as they're setting up the business and grow with them. So both of those things helped us move quickly towards a realization that, yes, product-led growth is the right version for us. Now, there is a small overlap between product-led growth and self-serve. It's not completely 100% there, but there is a small overlap, and therefore we decided to move into, into that very quickly. Um, the how of that has been quite interesting. It's a lot of learning as we go. Um, there's a big range of things on the self-serve journey, uh, starting from, let's call it step one to step five. Step one is, can a user just play with the product? And step five is going all the way to buy the product with a credit card on the website. Yeah. And we have started this journey. We are constantly measuring. We are A-B testing everything. Uh, and right now, we are very much around step one and a half. It's early days. The data is coming in. Happy to chat about this again in three months, and I'll be able to give you concrete numbers. You just mentioned that you use data to make your decisions. And you also mentioned that you're at 1.5. Can you describe a situation where you use data to uh, help evolve the product? So on the pre-trial journey, we have a detailed dashboard where we measure how users interact with the platform and what places they drop off. So for example, we built the very first version of the free trial, which wasn't as polished, uh, which is fine because the first versions should always be embarrassing, as I've learned. To be able to streamline that, we use data quite rigorously. So we are on a daily basis mapping how many users have landed on the page, at what points in the funnel have they dropped off, and that feeds into triggers for our various teams, our marketing teams, our sales teams, our product teams, such that the intention is we can call up 10 of these people and understand why they've fallen off and why they've not converted. So it's very much trying to use the data at a very granular level, while of course balancing that with qualitative feedback from users and understanding what is that most critical version of the free trial that will get the customer to convert and show value upfront. So much of the product is is two-sided. You have applicants and hirers. How do you make sure that both of them have a really great experience? There's a saying in the design world, and you might have heard this, three things that work for an amazing user experience. And they are simplify, simplify, and simplify. (laughs) And this is a constant struggle, right? Any product manager or any product person will tell you making things simpler is the hardest question. And that's what we are constantly striving to do. How do we just make sure it's as intuitive, as simple, and as delightful in the moment that the user experiences the product? And and yes, this is a journey for each product uh, and each company to go forth and learn for themselves. But this is, a, this is a journey that we are on as well right now. Earlier on, Kate was saying how Applied has now reviewed over 200,000 applications. I imagine Applied hasn't made 200,000 hires. What is the experience like for people who are rejected from the platform? Yeah, so we have over 200,000 applications. We've helped over hire over 4,000 candidates. Now, this is a conservative estimate because not every company self-identifies as having hired through the platform, even though they might have, but they don't go back into the system to report that they have. So it is quite an, uh, a conservative estimate. So it's essentially, you can imagine that over 190,000 candidates have been unsex- unsuccessful through the platform. What is surprising, and I think one of the most validating data points of whether applied works or not, is the reviews and the ratings that we get from these unsuccessful candidates. On average, they rate up platform nine out of 10. Now bear in mind, these are people who have just been told they're not getting the job. This is even higher for sections of populations that are underrepresented or belong to ethnic minorities or come from uh, different socioeconomic backgrounds. I don't think there can be a more higher validation of what Applied does and whether it does it properly is that there are 
huge number of candidates who are saying this is the better way to do things. We just need to get it to enough people out there. And the future of work dictates us to be doing testing candidates on what really matters. And if you do that, you have the double benefit of, as we have noticed it applied, more people outside the mold will apply for the job. Thank you so much for your time, Yadi. That was really amazing. Thanks, Mason. And now it's time for Nick, Blackbird partner and board member at Applied. Helping people to find jobs where they can be their best is just a fundamentally great thing to be in the business of doing. The way that most companies hire is insane and wrong and broken. And the reason why companies have such high churn in terms of employee churn. What's magical about Applied is that the year one retention for people hired through the Applied platform is 96%, which is unheard of. That's quite and what that, speaks to, what that speaks of is that Applied helps you find the right person for the job, whatever their background. And anyone hiring Applied can be confident that if you follow the process, you trust the process, you will get a great outcome. You mentioned in a recent blog post, we'll never go back to the old way. And I wanted you to sort of break down what's wrong with the world as it is now. So the traditional way of getting through a hiring process is that you have to pick one or two individuals to scan CVs, go on LinkedIn, and then make a judgment call about whether someone's a fit or not. And maybe part of that process is that they do a phone screen for 20 or 30 minutes. And there is so much bias at play with that process that there's just no rational way that that's the optimum process for hiring the right team. And what's difficult to accept about that is a lot of people um, who are successful I think um, have an innate belief in their ability to, ta- to pick talent, to spot talent, to be great judges. People, have, I think, feel very attached to their ability to just, oh, I can immediately judge character or I always know if they send a follow-up card after the interview, they're the right person. You know, whatever, whatever weird little quirks that you can develop or weird little tricks. And Applied, what's challenging about Applied for some people is that it takes that away and it just makes you admit that if you let yourself be open to bias, it will dominate your decision-making in an unproductive way. And Applied removes that bias and just makes you judge an applicant on the quality of their answers to the questions that you ask. And that is a completely different way of assessing a pool of talent for a particular role, but it's so much better and so much fairer. The saving of so much time on the phone screening, LinkedIn CV scanning process, which we just know to be pretty useless as a predictor of anything, is such a big upgrade in the process. But I think some people feel very attached to it because to admit that applied is a better way of hiring also comes with the admitting that the way you used to hire wasn't the best way either. And people are still stubbornly, I think, holding on to gut feel in this, in this stuff and not realizing how unhelpful gut feel is when it comes to hiring talent for your organization. You mentioned something that we learned from She's a Prey, which was trying to change consumer behavior is a really hard thing to do. You were a product manager at Under Armour. Can you tell me about the evolution of Applied's product and can you tell me about how they've worked towards breaking down that stigma or even a sense of ego of actually there's a better path forward? I think they're trying to create a movement, frankly, away from CVs and to blind hiring. So my view of the world is that X years from now, all hiring would be done on a blind hiring basis, you know, blind to age, race, name, gender, you know, university qualification. The really core piece of applied is what, Applied called the SIFT, which is the process by which the answers to questions that you ask are randomized and chunks together and then um, shared amongst your team to be rated so that you get three people independent, three or four people independently verifying the quality of an answer. And of course, those answers can differ, but across five questions, with three reviewers for each question, you get 15 different data points on the quality of every applicant. And you get that, that data point f- 
free of bias that comes with looking at a LinkedIn photo or a university qualification or whatever it might be. And so you can have a huge amount of confidence at the end of the applied sift that whoever your number one, two or three ranked person is in your, in your sift is the person one that you're going to hire and two, that's going to be successful at your organization 12 and 24 months from now. At the end of my interview with Sam, she asked me, what did you think of applied? This was before I got the job. I was probably still trying my best to give a reasonable response. And I said that I found it distinguished uh, who really wanted the job and who didn't want the job. And now being on the other side as also a marker, it is so easy to figure out who really cares and who doesn't care at all. And it's so easy to really remove the people that you know don't care about this job really. Um, And I think that's the other beautiful side to applied. And when I spoke about that behavior change piece or that, um, that building of trust in applied, there's been two roles where there was someone that I knew in the SIFT, but they didn't rank in the top three. So if I was going to interview the 10th best person by the applied ranking, I would need to interview all 10. I couldn't just pick the top three plus the number 10 because I like them. So I've been through a process of interviewing 10 people, hoping that number 10, who was the one that I thought had the best resume or whatever it might be, was the right fit. But as you ran through the process and asked the same questions of every applicant and scored those questions, I just realized it just didn't matter what I, what I thought it was the sift that actually got me to the right answer. Even as a user, even as an investor, I have double guessed applied in the past. I only did it once, but I won't make the mistake again. I want to switch gears a bit. And as a board member, how did you deal with and manage the CEO transition? It was difficult um, because I had invested in Kate in, I first met Kate in February of 2018. Applied was a product that was love at first sight for me. I think the other thing that we didn't speak about before is that Applied is built with the applicant in mind and not the hirer. So most um, HR software is just built for the administrator using it with the experience of the end user being kind of an afterthought. Applied really cares about does the applicant have a great experience in using their product too. And if you think about brand, as every touch point that you have with anyone out in the world, a huge part of your brand is how potential applicants interact with you in hiring for a job. So if you think most of the jobs that we put out for Blackbird get hundreds of applicants. So if we're going to hire 10 people this year, we're going to have a thousand people touch Blackbird through Applied. And I have full confidence that they're going to have a great experience with Blackbird through Applied and a better experience than they would with any other software that we might use. So I, from day one, was really blown away by the thoughtfulness that Kate and Rich had put into the product and to the analytics and experience of every every user of Applied. And so we went on a two-plus-year journey together, growing the company um, through all the challenges and the trials and tribulations of, of an early-stage company Lots because it's London, it's all super late night or super early morning calls for one person. And so we'd built up a friendship uh, and we were both fully bought into the mission. And so when Kate said, the best thing for me is to not be CEO anymore, I was devastated. It was, um, it was a, a sense of loss, but I also had a relationship with Kate that had a real quality and authenticity to it. And so when she told me that, I knew it was coming from a real place. Like I knew she was telling the truth and she wouldn't have come, I knew her well enough to know she wouldn't have come to that conclusion lightly. So while I was disappointed, the fact that that's what she wanted made it the right thing. And so at that point it just became um, pragmatic in terms of how I needed to be responding and we needed to find the best next person to take applied from here. And I've loved working with Kiati now for six months, for the last six months through one of the most challenging times for early stage companies and particularly for companies in the HR sector, which is disproportionately affected. So uh, it has been a baptism of fire for Kiati. 
um, taking over as CEO. It's been extra difficult for Kate to be transitioning out of the CEO role during such a difficult time. This is a big part of the job is to be there when things get hard. It's an easy job to do when companies are succeeding, but I think you earn your reputation and you learn the most when um, you're working through something difficult or challenging. And that's what we've done for the last six to nine months. And I think we've ended up in a really good place. I think we ended up there partly because of the quality of Kate's character and the way that she has has operated and acted as the CEO of Applied. And so my feeling now, although obviously disappointed that she's not the CEO, is just gratitude to her and um, gratitude that we got to spend two years working together and excitement, frankly, at the future to work with Kiati now. It was obviously a massive transition, but I really want to double down and learn what you needed to lean on during that process. What was your gut? telling you when there was a transition? How did you find yourself navigating those probably unfamiliar waters? The first thing was just to be sure that Kate really wanted what she was saying that she wanted and to fully understand that. So we needed some certainty about that transition because it's a big deal to step away from an early stage company that you founded, that you've given five years of your life to, that you've raised venture capital for. The first part was a process of just getting to the truth from Kate's perspective. In practical terms, that's just a series of, of conversations, just working through all the scenarios. The complicating factor in all this was we needed to raise a series A pretty much at the same time that Kate transitioned out of the CEO role. So, CEO transition in and of itself is, I think, manageable. CEO transition before a Series A round, that's the triple axle dive off the 10-meter diving board. (laughs) And that really just came down to really quickly transitioning the storytelling of the business to Kiati so that Series A investors were able to build confidence in her through the Series A fundraising process. Yeah, it was definitely a new experience, <clears throat> new experience for me. Definitely tricky and fundraising is hard at the best of times. Fundraising during a period of um, uncertainty or upheaval is much, much more difficult. To Kate's credit, she has assembled an awesome team. And so if I leaned on anyone, it was the, the exec team at Applied. So Kate, Rich, who co-founded Applied, Kiati, who's now the CEO, and Andy, who's the our chief commercial officer and Kate had built a really mature, open, honest, thoughtful culture. And we were just able to deal with the truth through the whole process. Um, and even though that was difficult, we didn't have to go searching for the truth because people were really open and upfront with it. You mentioned that this is one of the hardest times for any startup CEO, nevertheless, someone who is in transition. What do you think think Yardi needs to focus on as CEO? If you look at the timeline, it goes Q4 CEO transition, Q1 Series A fundraise with the new CEO, Q2 COVID hits. So it's about as hard a first three quarters of being a CEO as you could imagine. In terms of what we're focused on as a team, I think it's what we've always been focused on, which is how do we get applied into the hands of as many people as possible so that they can have that magical moment of going through a sift, hiring that first person, and then having that confidence and that thrill of the quality of the people that you brought through the process. Can you tell me about why you're so obsessed with Applied's mission? It's a great question. And I think the selfish reason to love Applied's mission is the Blackbird team. So if you look at the way the Blackbird team has evolved in the past two years, as we've grown from five to 20 people, we could not have growing that team in the way we have without Applied. And you are actually a perfect example. We never would have hired you off your LinkedIn profile <laughs> because you, you hadn't ever been an, you were asked to be a portfolio intelligence analyst. You'd never done it before. You didn't have a traditional background that would have lent to that particular role. You'd been a product manager. You'd been a founder. You were really early in your journey, but the quality of your answers on Applied was what mattered. And Applied enabled your uh, story to be told on the basis of the skills that mattered, not on your LinkedIn profile. So I think you are a perfect example of why you should believe in the mission of Applied. It's because it gives people the chance to get jobs that 
uh, bias would otherwise have prevented them from getting. <laughs> That's huge. And see, thank you so much for your time. No problem. Matt Surratt, thank you so much for joining us. Check out beapplied.com to see their blog posts. They've got genuinely awesome content. I'll leave it in the show notes for your reference. If you haven't already, make sure you sign up to Giants Weekly. They're our new online event series. Join us every Tuesday, 8 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time for 30-minute Q&As from top tech leaders. And finally, if you have any questions or feedback, we'd love for you to send us an email, wildheartsatblackbird.bc. We'll also hope you'll subscribe. And if you like the podcast, we'd be super grateful if you left us an awesome review. Thank you so much for joining us and I'll see you in a fortnight.